Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Hacks for Working Moms, the podcast that helps you overcome the overwhelm, embrace the chaos, and cultivate a life you love. My name is Megan Strand, and I am thrilled to be with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. This month, we're talking about parenting. It is a brave new parenting world out there fraught with all sorts of parenting conundrums that our parents never had to deal with. And I'm talking about the cyber world that engulfs all of us each and every day. It's both wonderful and terrifying to parents unsure where to draw the lines in the cyber sand. And most of us, quite frankly, feel like we just don't know what we don't know, which is why I've invited an expert in this brave new world to join me today. Larry Magid is a technology journalist, an internet safety advocate, and serves as on-air technology analyst for CBS News, and is also co-director of ConnectSafely.org and founder of SafeKids.com. Welcome, Larry. Well, thanks, Megan. And, and you actually got it really right there. It's a terrifying world, although it doesn't have to be. I, I hope that by the end of our broadcast today, uh, I will have given people a little bit to relax about, but I might give them a few more things to stress about also. That sounds like a plan. And I definitely want to dive right in because I've spent a little bit of time on your site. It's a phenomenal, actually several of your sites are phenomenal resources. But one of the things that stood out to me was that there's some misperceptions out there about keeping your kids safe online. So can you, can you talk a little bit about what you're hearing, what people think are the worst case scenarios that really aren't? Well, there's a lot of misconceptions and some of them go back years. For example, I, we started connect safely I always forget the exact year. I think it was 2005, 2006. It was in the middle of the predator panic, as we called it, when uh, Dateline uh, every week was running this show called To Catch a Predator. And there was all of the – and all the attorneys general were rattling the, the you know, cyber the, – the swords about it and the media was covering it. And then we did a little research. We actually didn't do it ourselves. We looked at research from the Justice Department, Crimes Against Children Research Center and other, other scholars. And we found out that the probability of a child being – molested as a result of a contact they first made online was extremely low. I mean, well below one in a thousand. And in fact, if you really want to keep your kids safe, you would let them go online, but you wouldn't let them go to school, go to the doctor, go to church or temple or mosque. And by all means, you would never let them go home because all of those venues had many, many more times the chance of a sexual predator getting in the internet. And then, uh, so we got, we got, we, you know, we got past predator panic and then then came uh, a task force that, that we were on, which really evaluated the Internet Safety, Internet Technology Task Force, whatever. I'll never get these right. Uh, ISTTF. And uh, it was run by the Berkman Center and the Harvard Law School. And it was endorsed by 49 attorneys general. And a group of us spent a whole year studying risk. And we came to the conclusion that the biggest risk for kids were, were not strangers and adults, but kids themselves. And, and then we started talking a lot about bullying. And that is a real issue, but even that got exaggerated. So I've had to write several articles about bullying panic. There's this notion that cyberbullying is an epidemic, and actually it is a problem. But, but depending on what research you look at, no more than one in five, most one in four kids have been uh, experienced cyberbullying. Some research says it's as few as 7%. Most of the cases of cyberbullying are not that horribly severe. They're, they're not good. I'm not, I'm not justifying it. And then we hear these stories about about cyber bullicides and suicides. Oh God, they're tragic. Your heart your heart just goes out right to the to the victims, the parents. But rarely, uh, experts tell us, rarely can you blame it on one single event. Yeah, maybe the kid was bullied. Maybe they were cyber bullied. Maybe they sexted and their image got distributed. And 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 maybe that had an impact. But you can't really pin 
something that involves mental health, in some case not taking meds. There's a lot of reasons why these horrible things happen. You can't pin it on one thing. So there's just been a lot of misconceptions and, and people not really understanding, even the privacy issue. I mean, I'm, I'm a big privacy uh, advocate. I really think that industry has got to get their act together. I think government plays a role. But at the end of the day, each and every one of us is responsible for our own privacy, and we tend to do things that jeopardize our privacy. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of things that, that you and me, our kids, can do to protect our privacy that don't even require government intervention or corporate changes. Well, thank goodness for that, right? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I recently attended a, a talk on parenting in the digital age and what he was talking about, he was talking about things on, on a sort of a high level. And his analogy was when, when you're thinking about parenting in the digital age, you're not really a parent. Think of yourself as a public relations coordinator. And I just love that analogy because he was like, you know, think of your kid as like a well-meaning, highly paid athlete. Like you need to give them some guidelines, but by and large, they have to be out there kind of managing this on their own. And I just love that analogy. That, that's a great analogy. My son is a well-paid uh, musician and really he's been a professional musician since he was a teenager. And, and it's a great analogy. And, and it's true. You know, if you think about it, I'm, I'm a media guy. You're a media gal, right? So we're used to being out there on radio or television or in the newspapers, whatever. But now everybody, every 13-year-old kid and probably younger who's got a Facebook account or a Twitter account is a media personality. And they may wind up having more people following them than I, you know, than the professionals like us have following us. I mean, there are literally 13-year-olds with millions of followers, and so you're absolutely right. That's so scary to me. That is that is terrifying to me. It is scary, but it's true. Not every 13-year-old, but there are some. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about it. I want to back up just a little bit. So I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And I feel like part of the challenge with technology is that it's like one day your kid is outside playing soccer and the next day they want an Instagram account. And it, what ages are you seeing kids start to become active in this, let's call it a digital world, you know, with social profiles or wanting to get cell phones? Like what age are you seeing this starting to happen? I'm sure it's not news to you that the answer is younger and younger, right? There was a study done by Dana Boyd a couple of years ago and talked about the millions of under 13s who got on Facebook with their parents' help, not even with their parents' permission. Their parents actually went online and lied on behalf of their children to get them on Facebook because social media, and you know, last time it was Facebook, now it's Instagram and Snapchat and Tumblr, whatever it is, it, it, it'll always change. But social media is the, the common. So, for example, if you're having a family reunion, uh, the kids want to be part of that conversation. And, and so whatever age, they're going to want to be there. And, and they're going to, they're, they, they've got smartphones and they want to share those images on Snapchat and on, uh, on uh, Instagram or whatever. So younger and younger, they want to be on. We have this law called COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. In fact, uh, just very recently, I had a conversation with one of the Federal Trade Commissioners about this. I was a little critical. She naturally was very supportive of COPPA. And COPPA is a very well-meaning law to protect children against having their information financially exploited by marketers. But it also means it's very, very difficult for companies like Facebook to let them on. It's possible. But to comply with COPPA is very difficult. So we've created this artificial barrier of 13. But the reality is millions of children are on these services. And Instagram doesn't even ask your age. So who knows what, the, what, what age groups are on Instagram. Wouldn't surprise me if they're eight-year-olds, although I, I wouldn't put an eight. I hope 
you say you have, you have what, 10, 12? I have 10 and 12. It would not surprise me if you're 10 year old. Well, so. and I didn't, I didn't even know my 10 year old does have an Instagram account, which I probably shouldn't say on air, but I just did. Well, I didn't know that 13 was because they don't ask you when you set it up. So I think, I think that's part of the, part of the challenge with. Now that your 10 year old has a media consultant, make sure he or she has a lawyer who can read all these contracts that we have, right? Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about cell phones because really that is the gateway to all of these platforms. As you've pointed out, it's like a mini computer in your pocket. So what are some of your top tips for cell phone use with kids? Because again, you know, we go from soccer balls to cell phones and it's, it's a big jump. It's really a scary thought because I, you know, I, I think, you know, I've been around the block for a few weeks around technology. I know a lot about it. I was giving a talk just the other day and I pulled out my phone and I, and I looked, I ran this app that tells me all of the tasks that are running in the background. I had 18 applications running, none of which I had actually launched, right? And by the time my talk was finished, without me even touching the phone, it had grown to 26 apps. I don't know what those apps are doing. I'm a pretty techie guy. I have no idea what information those apps are collecting and where they're sending it. So I'm going to give you advice, and then I'm going to admit that it's impossible to follow the advice, which is you should know everything about every app on your phone. You should read all of the disclosures. You should pay attention. But at the end of the day, it's really, really hard, because cause even I can't do that, and I try. I mean, you, you cannot install the apps, but if they're there, they can do things. So short of that, I would say be very aware of location. Location. Be aware, very aware of what you share. Be very aware of what you do with that camera. You're at a party. Maybe somebody takes off their shirt who shouldn't be rocking around without a shirt on. That's not the time to take pictures, right? Um, maybe there's, there are people in the, in, the, in, the picture, in the room that don't want to be photographed. Respect that. Ask them if it's okay. Just, you know, be aware of the fact that this, this phone in your pocket, this camera in your pocket, you can instantly share. That's, that's a big one. Uh, location, obviously. Be very, very careful with any apps designed to share your location, uh, where, where there are check-ins or whether, uh, whether they're really set up for, for location sharing, and there are a bunch of them out there. Uh, you know, you may not be able to protect your privacy from some of these companies, but you can at least protect your privacy from people around you. And the same rules apply to phones that apply to the web. Uh, you can't take it back. Be, be aware of what you post. Uh, make sure you don't do anything that's going to embarrass yourself now or in the future. And um, just try to exercise a little bit of common sense. Having said that, if, if you slip up once in a while, chances are the world's not going to come to an end. I mean, none of us are perfect. I, I've slipped up. But do your best. Yeah, you know, there was an article that came out probably a couple of months ago talking about how technology professionals use technology in their own homes with their kids. And what they found out was that they're a lot more protective than you might think about technology. And one of the things that I took away from that was a rule about no screens in the bedroom. And I thought that was a good rule. And I didn't, I hadn't thought about it because again, you know, my kid's got a Kindle. Okay. She's reading her Kindle in her room, but can she also go on to something that I don't want her going on to in her room? So it's, if it's a Kindle fire, she can, if it's the old fashioned Kindle, maybe not, but then there's the issue simply of the screen. I mean, I'm not a Luddite. I, I, look, I, I've got screens, you know, everywhere, including on my wrist. But the reality is that, that a screen lighting up at night before you go to bed apparently has some impact on your ability to, to get proper sleep. And that includes a television, by the way. And, and I'm guilty of that. We have a TV in our bedroom and we try not to use it as often as we used to because we just kind of want to, the bedroom ought to be a place for relaxation and, and comfort, not 
stimulation. Well, and, and not even not even the screen issue of having screen at night, but coming home from school after school and going up to your room and closing the door with a screen, I thought, oh, I could see why that's a bad idea. So that was a rule after I read that article. I was like, okay, no screens in the bedroom. They have to be turned in at 9 p.m. to my room. Like, I, that's what I've done. Is You know, when I started safekids.com, I always said, keep the computer in a central room of the house. But that's a ridiculous concept today, right? Because everything's mobile. I mean, you, you can't really do that. But you can have a rule, which is that every night before bedtime, all of the smartphones and smart devices and tablets get put in a, a central place of the house. They get put on a charger. So they get charged. Well, you get charged. Well, you, you know, that you and they are both resting and getting getting the energy you need to, to function the next day. And so that's that's our rule. We, we all go to bed at the same time. The, the phones, the, the tablets, and the people. Many of us as parents are on platforms like Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Not everybody's on Twitter, but that's not really where teens or tweens are hanging out. So talk a little bit about where they're hanging out. Some of these you might have to define. Um, and again, how we can keep up with what what's happening, what they're doing on these platforms. Well, the first thing before I answer the question, I want you to know that, 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 that the answer is perishable, right? Because what I say now yeah, tomorrow, there'll be something else could be totally something else. But I'll give you some answers. Tubler is increasingly popular. Uh, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, is, is the fastest growing site among all ages, especially teens. We're seeing a lot of kids using Snapchat because they like the ephemeral nature of being able to take a picture and at least theoretically having it disappear. But as we say in our parents' guide to Snapchat, it doesn't really disappear. There's a danger there. Um, and, and then there are others. I mean, gosh, there are all these uh, anonymous apps like Whisper, Secret, um, Let is a new one. Uh, Yik Yak is, is still pretty popular among youth. Uh, there's, there's a laundry list. And, and, and the reason I say there's a laundry list is I'm sure I've left some out uh, because, number one, there'll be some more by the time this, this show airs. But even even that, uh, they just keep, they come and go. And so one of the things that we need to do is l- be less concerned about specific apps and technologies and more concerned about about certain kinds of behaviors that tend to be, that tend to happen across apps. And so if you behave yourself, if, if you know how to behave yourself on on Instagram, you pretty much know how to behave yourself on, on on Snapchat. I mean, there are differences, but fundamentally, it's the same general issue of don't post stuff that's going to get you in trouble and be nice. So you have a 10-year-old in front of you, and they're just now getting on things like Instagram, because that does seem to be, at least in my area, sort of the gateway, which is photo sharing, and it's very innocuous. What would you say to that 10-year-old to just accomplish or to start the conversation talking exactly about what you just what you said, how to be nice, what things not, not to share? I mean, how do you frame that for a 10-year-old? Well, I would, I would urge parents to read our booklet, A Parent's Guide to Instagram, that you can get on connectsafely.org, clicking in the guide section. I think you're going to have links to it. We will. And, and I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I know what we wrote. Um, I would urge them to take advantage of the privacy tools within Instagram. There are ways you can control who has access to, your, to what you post. I would urge the parent of a 10-year-old, not an older teen, no teen, but a 10-year-old, I would urge the parent to monitor their kid's Instagram account. I don't think necessarily that's true once the kid hits teenagehood, but at that age, I would. Uh, I would talk with them about the consequences of, of what they post and what that means. It's a funny thing because technically you shouldn't be encouraging your kids to do something they're not allowed to do, but you know they're going to do it. And so just be very clear that, that you're kind of cool with it. As long as they, they obey the, the parental rules. And again, Parents Guide to Instagram goes into a lot more detail than I can on this program. 
Right. Yeah. You've got, you've got all sorts of great settings and things that you should need to be looking out for, but you sort of referenced some of them before there's location settings on many of these apps. There are barriers to who you allow to see your postings on many of these apps. So I think those are, those are, you do have some amazing, amazing resources that we'll put up online. So one of the things that you just touched upon that I posted something on my Facebook page last night, cause I knew you, I was going to be talking to you today. And one of the things that came up over and over, and I just basically said, what's your biggest concern about technology with your kids? Over and over it came up. People were like, well, how do we monitor what they're doing? And should we be monitoring? And are there, I I know there are products out there that allow you to see every single text that your kid sends. So what's your take on all of this, Larry? Do you recommend those, that type of tight monitoring? And if so, are there products we should be looking at? Like how closely do we do this? Like we're all paranoid and we don't know what to do. So we, we need you. You know, it's a very good question. And my general, my I, I would say generally not, but there are exceptions. So so it, it's just like physically expecting, inspecting your kid's room. So as a parent, my kids knew that we had the right to go into their bedrooms at any time and start rummaging around looking for God knows what we would have found. But, you know, we never did because we had no reason to suspect our kids were using drugs or drinking alcohol or, you know, having knives or bombs or whatever, you know, you might be afraid to find under their bed. And so we never looked. But we knew we had the right to. And my problem with some of these monitoring programs, as a general rule, for the average family, the average kid, right, is that first of all, TMI, you're going to get too much information. Do you really want to look at all of your kids' texts in both directions? Second of all, if your kid is otherwise behaving themselves, give them some privacy unless you have reason not to. Now, there are exceptions, right? There are certain kids who are taking extraordinary risks that need to be carefully monitored and maybe even carefully controlled. And by the way, that's also true with certain adults, which is why we have mental hospitals and prisons. So uh, there's no one set rule. If you feel your kid is taking risks, obviously do anything you possibly can to keep your kid safe, even if it violates every civil liberty in the book. But if, if you don't, you know, if, you're, if you think your kid's basically a good kid, keep your eye on them and look for other signs. If you're not seeing problems at school, if you're not seeing them been, you know, having sleep deprivation, if you're not seeing social issues with their friends, if, if things are going well probably things are okay. I mean, can I guarantee you that? Well, I, I, I have to go back to the manual that came with my kid to see what, what, what it covers. But, oh, wait a minute. My kid didn't come with a manual. I forgot about that. Well, that's such a great point. And I think our biggest struggle is that we don't have these role models to look to, to be like, oh, well, this is how my parents did it or what have you, because we just didn't, at least those of us that are of my generation. I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit. Okay, good. Please do. We didn't have technology role models, but our my parents had wisdom. My parents controlled how much I could use the telephone. They knew where I was going at night. They didn't sit in the back seat of my car when I turned 16 and rolled around with my friends, but they knew what friends I was riding around with. Well, they did know, they did put limits on me. And I'm not sure that things are that different. Technology changes the venue, but some of the same kind of general wisdom parenting that my parents went through, as well, by the way, of their paranoia, right? Because when they saw the long hair and the beard and they started reading about sexual revolution and birth control pills and LSD and people in the streets, I mean, I come from that generation. That scared the heck out of them. It turned out that our generation just as boring as theirs was in the end, but that's another story. But, but my point is that, you know, parenting... Yeah, the technology changes things, of course, just like television did, just like the telephone did, just like the the comic book did. But basically, at the end of the day, it's still about the fact that your kid may be more tech savvy than you are, but you've been on the planet a couple more decades. You've got some wisdom. Use it and use your judgment as a parent. Are there any sort of flat out absolute no's as parents that you would say 
keep an eye out for this or that. I mean, clearly we've talked about some of them. Like, don't let your kid have technology in their room at midnight. It's probably not a good idea. But are there any other? Sexting is, yeah, sexting is an interesting one. We just revised our parents' guide to sexting. And believe it or not, we took out the extreme. It never allowed this to happen under any possible circumstances. Your kid's going to wind up on a sex offender registry. You know, they're, they're going to wind up in horrible, horrible. We took some of that out because we realized that sexting, you know, it's not that it's more popular. It's actually less pot common than people think it is. But for some kids, it's a form of safe sex and flirting. But we really think that, that, that generally speaking, you shouldn't be distributing naked images of yourself. And you really, you can, bad things can happen if you're doing that, even if it's for someone who you feel very, very close to. So strong warnings on sexting. Um, kindness. I mean, I think we, we, need to, we need to evolve, but our world is evolving. Our, our, our kids are much nicer than we are. Real, and I really mean that. They're, they're less homophobic. They're less racist. They're less sexist. They're, they're a better generation than we are, and that's the way it should be. But sometimes we need to remind them that words can hurt. And, and they really need to be aware of the fact that, that they've got to treat people online the way they want to be treated and the way they want to be, their friends to be treated. And, and I just think that's so important that we, ro- we model that kindness. And the other absolute is, is limit the technology. And we've talked about this a little bit today. Don't allow the technology to take over their lives. I mean, we, kids need to go out and run around. They need to socialize. They need to, you know, hang out in, in, in malls. They need to do a lot of things. And sometimes we as parents, we're so afraid of predators and car accidents and bad things happening in public spaces that we wind up uh, limiting that. Let's give our kids a real well-rounded experience in life so that they don't just log on to that screen as their only means of socializing. This has been so fabulous. And I'm so happy to know about the organizations that you're a part of because I don't know, I just feel like we don't see enough online about this with great resources that like the ones that you provide through the organizations you're a part of. So can you tell listeners where they can find out more about all of these great sites that you run online? Yeah, the main nonprofit site is connectsafely.org, O-R-G. That's safely. Uh, I also run safekids.com. And if you're interested in my tech commentary, because I'm also a tech guy, you can go to larrysworld.com. And Larry's World is actually has links to all of the other sites as well. Excellent. Thank you so, so much, Larry. And of course, you can find Life Hacks for Working Moms online at lh4wm.com, as well as iTunes. Do recommend you subscribe to the podcast. And on behalf of Larry and myself, we'd like you to be well and be safe online. 